The cicadas are calling and the days are shortening. Welcome back to our new season. It's early in the fall term here at the college, even though the southern heat tells us our summer isn't quite over yet. New semester, new academic year. And this is the first episode of our new podcast season. In our previous season, we spent our time having in-depth, sustained conversations with professors around the college. We sent some deep taproots down into our college ecosystem. Now we're going to spread out. This season is part of MTC Interconnections, programs designed by the Center for Teaching Excellence to explore and hopefully improve interconnection at our college. What do you do for our college and how do you do it? How are you serving our students? Who are you in community with? And what's your experience of the state of interconnection at MTC? Welcome back to a new season of Instructional Ecology. I'm Claire Houle, a writer and instructional designer at the Center for Teaching Excellence at Midlands Technical College here in Columbia, South Carolina. I'll be telling you stories about life at our college and the ways we try to connect and work together to serve our community. For our first episode, I have a story to tell you about innovation at the college. Like the rest of the episodes in this new season, I'll have a host of voices telling it with me. My curiosity this season has been directed at stories of interconnection. How do ideas flow around the college? Where does connection happen and where does it gap? What work are we doing and who are we doing it in partnership with? Everyone seems to have their own experience of our community, So let's see what that looks like for the people who are telling their connected story today. Our story begins with a professor. So my name is Bob Witkowski and I teach in the humanities department at the college. I teach the communication courses, the mostly public speaking SBC 205. I've been with the college since 98. (laughs) Gotta take a second to think of that. So, and I have been teaching uh, public speaking for every semester that I've been here. In his almost 25 years with the college, he's come to know our students well. And in the 20 teens, he began to be increasingly troubled by a big barrier to student success, the cost of textbooks. I used to work with Pearson Education as one of their consultants as to what we're looking for in a public speaking class, what we be needed in a online public speaking class. And I met with various people. I've sat in on various conferences with them, gave them different feedbacks to tailor their product. But the problem was, even though they were trying to produce a good product, the main goal, and understandably so, was to produce a product that made them money. So I was quickly realizing that I could probably do this on my own, And I could create a product that wouldn't cost the student any money, that they wouldn't be forced to buy every semester, and that the faculty wouldn't be forced to change every year because the publisher decided to flip chapters one and two so they can sell a new book. That's the textbook publisher model for profit. Sometimes textbooks need content updates, and sometimes the publisher simply needs a new edition to keep their revenue stable or growing. When editions change, the price can go up and the content is often rearranged so that professors have to update their teaching materials. 
and costs keep going up. Bob checked in with his students about this rising expense. Uh, I do a survey at the end of my uh, classes. And I, one of the questions on the survey I asked them is I asked them, have you ever not purchased a textbook solely because of cost? And you would think that number would be pretty low, especially since so many of our students are on financial aid and much of financial aid could pay for these textbooks. But the national average uh, for the response nationally to that question is about 60 to 62% of students say that, yeah, I've, I've not bought books solely because of the cost. Interestingly enough, the response from our students is about 62%. So we are spot on with the national average. So the idea that there's students taking classes and they need a textbook, but they're not buying it solely because of cost. 62% of students not owning required class textbooks is a hell of a percentage. And that's a direct impact on student success. It's very hard to succeed when you don't have access to the text that's being used throughout a class. So if we're interested in student success, and we sure are, we can't overlook concerns about access to textbooks. A lot of us think about this, don't we? And Bob knew that the changes to his course could affect the other professors teaching public speaking. And perhaps most importantly, he knew he needed to share that information about how many students weren't buying books solely because of cost. So he went to his department chair. My name is Elena Martinez Vidal. Currently, I am a faculty member in the humanities department. I am also the coordinator of music and theater. And Elena heard Bob coming a mile away. I just used to love it because I would be in my office as, as department chair and I'd hear Bob's voice outside talking to Lisa and I think, oh my gosh, what is Bob bringing to me now? I never knew, but I have to tell you, it was always good stuff. She heard him coming, friends, and she waited in anticipation. I mean, I really found him to be an extremely valuable faculty member to bring things that might be an issue. I use this in the John Lewis sense. He's good trouble. He is good trouble because he's very committed to students. He's always been very committed. Everything that he did had to do with how to make it better for students. So I, I really found him to be very, very valuable. Elena, who was chair for 14 years, also teaches public speaking as well as theater courses. She's been teaching for the college for decades and has a deep commitment to meeting students where they are. As Bob's chair at the time, she valued his perspective on supporting students. So this time, he brought her a big revelation about student textbooks. And their years in the classroom have showed Bob and Elena that a good number of MTC students are on tight budgets and textbook costs is significant. Elena has often thought about this exact concern. That can mean food. That can mean housing. That can mean, I mean, I don't, I think we seriously do not quite understand some of the plight that our students go through. And I've had students who have told me they became unhomed during a semester and 
and uh, we pro there are probably many students who don't tell us things like that, so we don't know. Um, a student who suddenly disappears, for all you know, that person became unhomed or couldn't eat or whatever happened. So, I, I mean, seriously. They had both watched the price of the public speaking textbook rise. When I first started teaching here, the textbook we were using, I think it was right around $40. And by the end, when I started doing this OER search, it was 140 wasn't a better book. They didn't add more things to it. It was just, you know, I guess a decision that they would like to make a bigger profit or whatever it might be. So at that time, what was motivating me was to just to see what else was out there. What are my other options? You know, can I get make this work? Can I eliminate this barrier to my students? And like the proactive person he is, Bob was ready with a solution to suggest to Elena. And it wasn't one that she had ever considered or even heard of. Instead of using traditional textbooks made in the for-profit system, he could try using open educational resources, usually shortened to OER. But what exactly is an OER? Let's ask an expert. Open educational resources, they can be anything. It can be a textbook. Um, that textbook can be digital. It can be in print. It can be a video that was created. It can be a syllabus. It's any type of educational material that are in the public domain and were created under a Creative Commons license. And the Creative Commons license specifies how the material can be used. So. Can it be used, can it be reused, adapted, remixed, and shared or modified to your specific needs? That's Laura Baker, now the library director at MTC. Should be an important part of our story in a moment, but her moment has not yet come. Back to Bob and Elena in the chair's office. What are OER? That is a really good question. And so he came to me one day talking about an online OER he had found. And I'm kind of like, well, what is that? Because I don't know what that is. And at the time, Bob wasn't sure what was out there. There wasn't a clear place to start. This would be a quest. I really didn't know what I was hoping for because I didn't know what was out there. At that point, you know, OER, at least for me, and I think for most people, was a relatively new concept. And I think it's relatively new even still. But there's much more support, many more groups out there that you can contact and such. But at that time, you know, to be honest, just envisioned in my mind was just I find a textbook or find enough material that I could put together a textbook on my own using this other material that would allow me to remove what we we're using at that time. So that was just in its infancy when I was starting. So for me, it was a lot of searching on my own, just Google searches and, and looking around and, and trying to find what maybe is there someone else putting this together. So his chair was on board with his project, and he continued the work of finding his materials and getting them set up. So he went to another person also at the beginnings of their interest in OER, and we heard her a moment ago, Laura Baker, then a librarian at the college before she would become our library director. Back when Bob was searching for usable and accessible OER, he and Laura began to work together. He is a faculty member and she is a supporting librarian. At the time, Laura was new to the idea of OER, but another librarian would soon move her from mob curiosity to impassioned advocate. 
understood what OER were and how they could be utilized, but I still had a great deal to learn at, at the beginning. I was first introduced in to OER in 2014, around that time, but I became you know, thoroughly converted in 2018 after attending an affordable learning workshop retreat that was led by Tucky Taylor from University of South Carolina. Um, until then, I had been just looking at OER kind of as like it was a new big thing, but her presentation really opened my eyes to the impact it could have on students regarding equity and access. And I also learned more about peer-reviewed sources like OpenStax and SUNY and the Open Textbook Library. Tucky, um, and I know Tucky has converted many people <laughs> to OER, but she has this just excitement. She just gets your energy levels up and she just had a way of relating it to why it was important, not so much so much the what it was, but the why it was important. And as a librarian, you know, equity and access are extremely important, making sure everyone has access to resources uh, and everyone has the same access so that it really hit home. And Laura ended up offering early workshops that Bob took advantage of. In 2019, we conducted a faculty survey to learn about interest in OERs. And then using that information, we developed introductory OER workshops and which Bob attended. And that's how we kind of connected to work on another speech course that he was interested in developing. And the OER began to come together. And uh, I got fortunate with my discipline is when I found a complete textbook that was created just for an introductory public speaking course. So there was a book out there. There's a couple of different ones out there now, uh, but this one I thought was very good. It was the Public Speaking Project, and it was a collection of different instructors who are also interested in OERs uh, from across the country, actually. And they had each instructor who specialized in a particular subject within public speaking write that chapter. So it's an interesting book because it's a collection of probably about 15 to 16 authors who put this book together and they made put it on the web and it's free. Uh, so once I found that, I had the textbook, um, but then I had to go forward and put together the rest of the material that instructors would use. And Laura helped out with her skills as a librarian. Laura has always been a, a great resource at the college. And I've relied on her for many different things. We had a textbook and I said, well, if I created an OER for the public speaking, now let's create an OER for the interpersonal textbook. And unfortunately there wasn't a single book like there was for public speaking that I thought was a good book. But there are many different sources and different books where it'd be, okay, this one has a good chapter on nonverbal communication. And this one has a good chapter on communicating with the family. So I worked with Laura Baker and she created an OER and we pulled all those different sources together into think of it as a digital book for that class. So even though it, that one took a little bit more work, she was more than willing to help. She was, Never did she say, oh, no, we can't do that, or no, that's a bad idea. You know, anything I came to her with, 
She said, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll try to find something. We'll try to make that work and we'll see what's out there. This is the kind of partnership that librarians are actually dying to have with faculty. I think the possibilities are endless. When faculty and librarians work together, everyone wins. Collaborative partnerships between faculty and librarians allow us to share our expertise and skills. We can improve our teaching and our research experience, and we can integrate information literacy in higher education. Um, it's sort of a reciprocal relationship. Faculty benefit from having a librarian help them find resources for teaching, and in turn, the librarians learn more about course content so that we can purchase more materials that better support the curriculum. We become familiar with student assignments. We learn more about their subject area, and in turn, they learn more about information literacy and ways they can incorporate that into their course or their, their classes. And in the end, like I said, we pass this information along to our students, so they win because it promotes positive learning outcomes. Bob was now ready. So with Elena's blessing, he launched the pilot test course. And so I, I kept her in the loop and uh, let her know, okay, you know, here's the book. I've got it uploaded to D2L. And when I then finished the, the, the test bank, I let her know that as well. And I said, you know, if you want to share this with everyone because I did make it available and make everyone else aware of it. But I think coming from someone in a leadership position as the chair to send out that email to all our faculty and all our adjuncts as well saying, hey, everyone, we may want to look at this as a department. Probably put, uh, I'd say maybe a, a, a little bit more or at least drew a little bit more attention to this textbook in other people's minds and said, hey, you know, maybe I should take a look at this and, and maybe I should see if it works for me. And the chair was happy. And it was very successful. I mean, he gathered data on comments that students gave and how much they liked that there was a book right there. They didn't have to buy a book. They didn't have to go get a book. They didn't have to pretend to have a book. I love, as a department chair, I loved it when a faculty member would come to me with an idea. I mean, honestly, I'm, I was a very collaborative, I'm still consider myself a collaborative leader. I, I am not perfect. I am not a dictator. I do not know everything. So, so to me, having faculty members bring me ideas is really a wonderful thing. And certainly anything that, that a faculty member would bring to me that was good for students, I was very happy about. The public speaking OER project was off to a strong start in the humanities department. And as this project was slowly unfurling in part of the college, others were also discovering OER in their own roles at the college and polishing their understanding and thinking through how OER could be of use to us. Encouraged by his success, Bob went to a workshop offered by then director of online learning, Devin Henson. OERs were a passion of Devin's and still are. My name is Devin Henson, and I am the associate vice provost for academic affairs. And I've been at the college about 15 and a half years. So I started here as a math instructor. Um, so I was in the math department for about uh, seven years or so. And then I transitioned to the director of online learning after that and did that for about five years or so. 
And then I've been in my current role ever since. And Devin got into OER by a now familiar source. When I started as director of online learning, I didn't really know much about OER. Um, how I first came to, to intersect with, with OER and the OER conversation was uh, I met a lady at USC. Uh, she was the head of their library. Her name was Tucky Taylor. Um, and I went to, I want to say I went to a workshop or something and and um, anyway, got exposed to the idea of OER and it really piqued my interest. And so I reached out to Tucky and we met and talked more and um, grew, grew a, a relationship where we ended up doing a lot of conference presentations and research and um, a whole lot of work on uh, OER. Uh, it was something she was very passionate about. And if you talk to her, the you know certain certain people who bring an energy, um, that energy just bleeds off. And and I bought in big time uh, to the concept because I, I saw the the benefits of OER, which I'm sure we'll talk about today. Um, and that that was my first big experience. And so then uh, really embraced that as director of online learning. So here's the first secret hero of our story local U of SC librarian, Tucky Taylor. Both Laura and Devin took advantage of the time she was giving to the community to educate about OER. So she is the secret fairy godmother of the story and a member of the greater Columbia higher education community. Laura and Devin have adapted what they learned from her for our community, which is one of the best parts of outreach and connection. But to return to our story, Devin began at the college as a math professor, and he saw the same thing that Bob and other professors saw. I remember uh, as a faculty member, I would have a lot of students who would try to take my classes without buying the textbook. Um, they usually did it for financial reasons. Um, it just, it cost too much. I taught calculus. And so calculus is usually a three semester class, Calc 1, Calc 2, and Calc 3, all bundled in one book that costs 200 and something is it very, very expensive. And so students would try to kind of wing it. And those were often the students who weren't successful. And so, you know, I realized that if we could eliminate that barrier, that cost barrier, and give students access the first day of class to the full textbook, they would likely be more successful. The cost of textbooks isn't a new issue. It persists generationally. So when Devin moved out of direct teaching to administration roles, he felt his mission was the same, even if he worked differently to address it. And, you know, my, my interest in student success uh, didn't change when I moved into administration. We, we still uh, keep a close eye on student success at a, at a co collegiate level um, because student success even impacts things like enrollment and retention. And, and so it, it bleeds through everything. So, so student success, I, I think OER is a hidden area that doesn't get enough attention when we talk about increasing student success. You know, we, we talk about other things. You know, we talk about getting more mental health counselors or more advisors, or, and th those are all great things and we should be doing those. But we have this hidden little thing on the side that has the potential to impact student success that I don't think we give quite enough attention to. Here's how an administrator conceptualizes the problem of the cost of textbooks. 
the the equity gaps that we see in in students you know if you look at the demographic the different demographics or the range of demographics of students and you look at the ones who can afford two and three hundred dollar textbooks and the ones who can't though if they can afford it and they purchase it and they're successful um that's great but then if you have another population who can't afford it and they don't buy the textbook and ultimately they're not successful you get a widening of the gap of of in terms of student success between the the haves and the have-nots to put it bluntly um and and that's unfortunate and you know one thing that midlands tech prides itself on is its diversity and how uh it's a benefit to all students no matter where you're coming from no matter what your background is and this is a niche little area that um you know we've got some some equity gaps and, and i think oer closes those gaps and puts everyone on equal footing where everyone has access to high quality uh academic resources so um you know th those are two big ones that that are, are definitely on on the top of my list in terms of the benefits of oer laura baker also mentioned equity as a major concern of librarians earlier in our program this is a college-wide concern, and she and Devin have now been working on these issues for years together in different ways. So Devin, I think, was one of the first people at MTC to introduce and support OER implementation, and the library met with him when he was the director of online teaching and learning to discuss OER. Um, and now he's AVP and also my supervisor, and he offers tremendous support with the library and open educational resource efforts. He's helped us secure grants. He's helped me develop a survey for the faculty. He always helps us promote OER initiatives, and he encourages us to think big when it comes to open educational resources. He supports our endeavors and he kind of helps pave the way to make OER adoption at the college more accessible. I often hear this kind of perspective as people follow their career path at MTC. Student concerns they see over the years remain a focus and they find ever new ways of addressing them as their roles change over time. So now we have Laura and Devin all in community with Bob and Elena in the pursuit of the advantages OER can bring to faculty and students. I'm so glad, you know, Bob and I crossed paths and his wife, Christine, and, you know, just over the years, they've been, you know, a big help to me um, from, from the faculty level of just implementing different things, picking their brains, talking about issues. Um, they're both very, you know, willing to do that, which I really appreciate. So, um, you know, I got passionate about OER, as I mentioned, through Tucky Taylor and, and that relationship. And so I started doing workshops on it. I started uh, talking about it in different committees that I was a part of, and Bob was a part of those same committees, and some way, shape, or form, we found each other, um, and, and turns out he had a passion for OER as well, and the biggest bridge that happened when I met Bob was that he had local data where all I had was national data. By the time I got to online learning, I wasn't teaching as many classes anymore, so I couldn't really pull that data myself, but it was really powerful to have Bob be able to provide um, data from, he, he did student, probably still does, student surveys in his classes um, about the cost of textbooks, whether they've bought or haven't bought textbooks, uh, so on and so forth, all the typical OER questions 
you know, he was asking them and ha has done it for a while now of our own Midlands Tech students. So the four of them flowed together into a confluence of ideas. They worked alongside in their particular roles over the years, professor and chair and librarian and administrator. And slowly, the public speaking OER was assembled and fully built out, some of which Bob created himself to make certain it was fully customized to the way the class is taught here at MTC. I took the time to write out a whole test bank for the entire textbook as well. I created all the questions, put them in there, uploaded them all to D2L by chapter. And I said to the faculty, you know, you're welcome to use this test bank as well. So trying to take what I was learning from sitting in those meetings with Pearson as to what a lot of faculty wanted in a textbook and uh, the accompanying materials, I tried to create it for this. Again, the goal is to try to make a textbook package that was user-friendly for the faculty. And so it wasn't an undue burden. They didn't have to do a lot of work adopting this. It was right there. You know, I, I showed them exactly how to download it, how to upload it to their class. So I, I try to make it as easy as possible for others to adopt it. The pilot was a success. It worked so well that Elena began to work on the OER materials to update and improve their accessibility. Now it, it is the mainstay of my course. I have also in a QM design of SPC 205, um, I helped create accessible, their, their PDFs, that OER is PDFs, and um, I created accessible documents. We have these housed. Bob also created um, quizzes for every single chapter. So we have a whole quiz bank that people can use. Um, so we have the PDFs, we have accessible documents, we have a quiz bank. And anybody can use these. In fact, I just, I literally yesterday got an email from an adjunct saying, oh, oh, that link doesn't work anymore to the link to where they used to be housed. I said, don't worry, I have them, here they are. So, um, and my students comment actually a great deal on it because I asked them to comment on course materials and a lot of them comment how much I, they were so grateful that the textbook was there. And it was a, a textbook that they found very readable and understandable. So I think it's been a big success. I do believe um, that everyone except maybe one or two, and we have a lot of speech faculty, but I think everyone except maybe one are using the OER and the students really, really appreciate it. Elena and Bob are seeing immediate student feedback on the OER. So I think we should hear some too. Meet Gail, one of Bob's public speaking students. So Gail A. Glover, I am a dance educator in Columbia, South Carolina. I am studying sociology. That would be my associate degree. Afterwards, I hope to matriculate and get the four-year degree, bachelor's in sociology, and then continue on to get my master's in diversity, equity, and inclusion. Like everyone at the start of the story, Gail was new to OER when she came to Bob's class. Well, actually, Bob was the first experience I had with an OER. I, he, he came in and class 
when we first started and said that he would not be using a book that you had to buy out of the school bookstore or even online. He said he would give us the information we needed to obtain the book, which was a download. I thought it was great because all I had to do was go and get the book, the pages downloaded as I needed them. And I actually downloaded the whole thing, even though he did not use the whole book. I, I just thought it was great information. So that was my first experience with using an OER. The book was ready on the first day to be downloaded. And once she accessed it, it was hers to use as much as she chose. Another part of the traditional textbook model we haven't touched on yet is the end of semester book buyback, when students can sell their text back for cash. And Gail makes a great point about book buyback and how students now perceive this supposed advantage. Another aspect of it is that if you don't return the books right away, you don't get a refund. Or if you, when you do return them back, I mean, you don't even get a fraction of what you pay for the books. Like I think I got one book, I was able to turn it in on time, and I got 18 bucks or something like that, and I paid 250 bucks for it. It was just crazy that I didn't get any money back for it. It was really crazy. But I actually don't want to return my books back in because I like having them. I, I want to refer to them. I'm in sociology and and I want to keep the book that Bob gave us, you know, that we downloaded, the speaking book, because it's going to help me later on. I can refer to it. I want to keep my sociology books. But the first thing I think about is, man, this book cost me a couple hundred dollars. I need to turn it back in and see what I can get for it. So just being able to have all of my books that did not cost me a lot of money and to keep them so that I could refer to them, I would. Gail is telling us that textbooks are an investment when you want to keep them for later professional and personal reference. They remain useful after a class ends. So you'd miss out on a chance at even a small return of cash if you skip book buyback, which often doesn't offer the student a significant return of their original purchase price anyway. Bob says that this response of surprise and relief that the book is free and ready on the first day of class is almost universal now when he tells them they'll be using OER. So on day one, when I'd walk in, I would always see three or four students with the textbook that they purchased. And I said, okay, for those of you who bought that book, when we leave today, go back to the bookstore and get your money back. And when I explained to everybody, you know, that the book is free this semester, I would actually have students hang around and thank me and say, wow, thanks so much. I really appreciate it. You know, it may only be $120 or at that time, $140, but that made a difference. And even now, uh, at the end of every semester from my online as well as on-campus class, I give a survey asking the students, again, you know, have they ever not purchased a book? But I also ask them about the quality of the book. Is I want to get some feedback as to whether they like it. Do they think it is on par with books that they have purchased? And I very favorable. Yes, they have, you know, almost everyone says, yes, this is really, the book's fine. I also ask them, you know, do you think you are more likely to read this book 
because it's free as opposed to having to purchase one. And, and that too, yes, I, I get uh, quite a few students that will respond yet. Yes, it, I'm more likely to read it because I have access to it from day one. Overwhelmingly, it's been positive. And you know, I get many students that say, I wish more of my instructors would, would do this. I think the OER is a solution to this problem. So from day one, my students have the book. I, you know, no one can say to me, oh, I don't have the book yet. You know, yes, you do. It's right there. And the savings to our community just with the removal of the price of this one textbook have really added up over the years the department's been using his OER. I think a lot of publishers have seen the writing on the wall and they see the number of OER or, or some other form of alternative source of information. And I think they're responding by dropping their prices. But if I took, you know, if you take an average, if, if I think about it since I, you know, since 2015, you know, how many classes have I taught? What about 14 a year? Is that times seven? And then times 25 for the number of students. And then you multiply that by the book cost. So you're, you know, I mean, it's in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. And that's just from my class, one public speaking instructor. Now, fortunately, we multiply that out now for almost all of our public speaking instructors. Year to year, I mean, we're talking about a significant savings for our students. Imagine the money the community saves if the college increased the number of free or low-cost OER. When Devin looks around at what's trending in other colleges with missions like ours, he sees some pretty big possibilities. Another thing I'd like to see us do is potentially have a degree that can be done solely using OER. Um, I believe it's Tidewater Community College has something they call the Z degree. The Z meaning zero as in zero textbook cost. Um, that's a great marketing uh, tactic, you know, to advertise, hey, come to college and get your whole degree without having to pay textbook cost um, because we've designed our curriculum in such a way that it's all OER based. Um, you know, I think, I think that's a great idea. When I asked Gail what she'd think as a student of not having to pay for most, if not all of her textbooks, her own experience made this powerfully appealing to her. To me, that would be a game changer because even though grants or scholarships pay for the tuition, you still have hundreds and hundreds of dollars to pay for books and supplies, mostly books. And when I, my first semester back, I'm, a, I'm an older student. So <laughs> my first semester back, I actually went into a little bit of sticker shock because I was like, okay, great. My, my grants are gonna cover my tuition. But then I had over a $700, $800 book fees. And I could not believe the amount of money and I was just wondering where I was going to get this money from to pay for the books. And I actually ended up charging it on my credit card, which is not what a student, I don't care what their age is. I mean, I'm an adult and been out in the world for a while, but I can just imagine what a 17, 18, 19 year old just getting out of high school, maybe they don't have the, the money to invest, and I use that word, invest into it, into books, or maybe even their parents. Maybe they're the first ones going to college. And I personally 
just was shocked. It was in the pandemic during the pandemic when I went back. I was not earning a living, and here I had this huge book uh, debt to charge on my credit card, and then figure out how I was going to pay it. So I was literally in sticker shock, but I was determined to go to school. So I did what I had to do. I think as a student, though, if all of my books would have cost me 20 bucks, that would have truly been a game changer for me and taken some of the um, worry. The numbers can be pretty clear as Bob sees it. What the students pay tuition-wise is not really set by the college. We don't really have much control over that either. But one of the things that we can influence is what we require the students to buy as far as textbooks. We can influence that. So I looked into it, and at one time on Midlands Tech's website, it would show the students what they can expect to pay for each program. I mean, now it's a little bit different because we have the free tuition, which is great. But at the time when I was doing this, most programs was, were around $10,000, $12,000. So then I went through a, a number of programs and I looked at every class. I, I keyed out every textbook that was required for that program. And I said, okay, well, how much does it cost to buy books? And it was anywhere from three to $4,000 that the students would need to buy textbook, what they're paying for textbooks. So if their program is 10, 12,000 and they're paying three to 4,000 on top of that in textbooks, if we could lower that, that would definitely help students be able to afford to come to our school. In administration, Devin agrees. A lot of students have had to take less classes because they're spending so much in textbook cost. You know, you know, if, if you have $200 textbooks and three classes, well, that, that $600 might have been another class you could have taken and maybe graduated earlier. So they're, they're having to throttle their enrollment and how many classes they're taking based on textbook costs as well. So, you know, if, if you want students to graduate and you want them continuing their education and you want what's best for them, uh, it's something we, we need to consider as a college because I, I truly think it's uh, what's best for them and the data doesn't lie. I mean, there's the OER has been around and established for well over 10 years now. So there's, there's established data out there that shows it benefits students, it really does. Um, so so I, I think it's, you know, worth it to investigate. The financial benefits are crystal clear. And socially, having instant access to a free textbook is one less worrying barrier to a student considering one of our programs. So if you're faculty at MTC, have you thought about the possibility of OER in your classes? And if so, do you have concerns? Faculty usually have many good questions and valid concerns when they first consider OER for their classes. I would say the main thing they worry about is the quality of the content. That is the, the, their first concern, the thing they're most concerned about because they fear that because the materials are free, they're low quality, but that's not true. Um, many authors get paid for their work through a stipend or a grant, so they are the, the people that are creating these open educational resources are receiving 
money, it's just through a stipend or a grant. Um, and then the OER resources are subject to the same editorial and peer-reviewed process as traditional publications. Many OER repositories allow faculty to review and see others' reviews. There are many tools out there to evaluate OER. The library would be more than happy to, to help anyone learn how to evaluate the information, not only just for OER, but for any information. Um, and in the end, faculty are the best judges of the quality because they know their students' needs. So Bob would encourage any of you thinking about trying OER to seriously investigate the possibility. The college def definitely has the resources and are willing to support people who are interested in doing that. As a matter of fact, I laugh because I think there's now even release time if someone's willing to do it. There wasn't any release time or anything like that <laughs> back in 2013 when I started. So I joke about that. I say, yeah, sure, it's all the support now that it's I got it all done. But really, if someone's interested in doing this, uh, you will find it to be worth your time and your students' time. Because not only is it beneficial financially for the students, I think being able to tailor your textbook to what you want to include, what you don't want to include, can be very helpful. But from a faculty perspective, what is also very helpful is you now control your material. You now control your book. This is a story of how innovation comes to an institution, not through a huge top-down initiative or a lightning strike, but through groundswell. It rises and builds. Effective change honestly comes from below. And, and I will say that this is not necessarily my own thoughts. My father was a professor as well. And before he passed away, he and I used to talk about this because we both agreed when something, if a faculty member gets an idea and it's a good idea and they implement it, and then it starts to bubble up to the point where either the national consciousness or the college consciousness or the department, whatever, wherever it gets to a point where it's sort of boiling a little bit and suddenly there can be support underneath it. It's great, it's wonderful. There's a wonderful little soup going and then everybody jumps on it. Our story began almost 10 years ago and OER are gaining momentum in many places, including Bob's department. To me, is just worth it. It really is, which is why I'm going to try it myself. Elena and another theater instructor, Eileen Fins, are planning on building an OER for Theater 101. And despite her experience with the public speaking OER, Elena is honest about how daunting the task feels to her. I'm hoping that this will work out. I don't want to actually write a book. I do not want to write a book. What I want to do is gather materials and then, you know, just write the splices in between. That's what I want. I can, I think I can do that. It's going to be hard. I'm scared. But she knows where to go when it's time to start. Well, I have not worked with them on this, but I know people who have, and they say they're fabulous. So as far as I'm concerned, go to the library, get someone fabulous, let them help me. I mean, I love Laura Baker, so, and I know she was an early proponent of OER, so I'm sure there are other librarians over there as well who are fabulous and who will help me. It really took Bob, good trouble Bob, 
coming up with, I found one, it's good, I want to try it. I mean, that's what it took to get me on board and other people on board. And of course, him creating the question bank was a big draw. Me having created the, you know, the accessible stuff, that that's a big plus. So now we, we've got all the little components and we're happy as clams. And to pick up on Elena's observation about change, it's happening because of the multiplicity of perspectives and roles that are working toward this change to help our students. Everyone wants the best for students, right? Um, I, I think that's a given. I know all the administrators at Midlands Tech and I know a lot of the faculty at Midlands Tech and, and we want, you know, across the board, we want what's best for students. And so in that sense, we're all pulling in the same direction. Um, but how that fleshes out and how that plays out is very different depending on your perspective. You know, one, one thing I think faculty bring to the table is they have the day-to-day -day contact with students. They are hearing from the single mother who's having to make a decision between paying her light bill or buying her English textbook, right? Um, I don't hear that on a daily basis. I wish I did, but I, I just don't have that relationship or that that um, uh, type of situation where I'm interacting with that many students on, on a daily basis. So faculty are hearing the student voices and, and can in turn be a voice for the students to the administrators who are making some of the decisions about uh, the bookstore and publisher contracts and textbook decisions um, and, and you know integrations with learning management systems and revenue and th this or that and all, all those other things they can be a voice for those students and advocate for OER. <clears throat> On the other hand, you know I think administrators bring some important things to the table because they can help stitch everything together. Um, there are a lot of considerations. You know, when you when you talk about implementing OER, you know, we have we have to navigate a relationship with our bookstore. Um, we have to navigate, um, you know, relationships with uh, billing and finance. You know, if we let's say do an inclusive access model where students, you know, pay a small fee at the at the start of a class, well, then we that's that's connecting to tuition and um, the cashier's office, and there's just so many tentacles that that maybe faculty don't have all those relationships or know necessarily about. Um, so it's really important that everybody is pulling in the same direction and, and they bring their different strengths to the table. Now, have you spotted the true secret hero of this story? It's a weird one. Listen again. I started uh, talking about it in different committees that I was a part of, and Bob was a part of those same committees, and some way, shape, or form, we found each other. I believe we were in another, it was a, a meeting or a committee, and we just started talking, and he was planning on expanding um, the open educational resources, and he wanted to include that in another course that he was looking for. I also uh, relied on other people who were interested in OERs. I know Devin Henson at the time uh, was interested in OERs, and I was on a committee with uh, Devin. Friends, it was a committee that got these people in a room together years ago and allowed them to start talking about a shared interest. Feel free to have a laugh. 
Committee work in higher ed is quite the mixed bag, isn't it? We've had every kind of experience on committees over the years. But in this case, having a crossroads to sit down together and talk ended up stitching together these people in a complex web of responsibilities, needs, and goals. But they've made a micro-community within MTC that's spiraling outward, adding people, ideas, and possibilities. This fall, the CTE has just begun its first open educational resource faculty learning community, the OERFLC. That's a year-long project faculty members across the college are undertaking, a year of study and work to understand the nature and uses of OER, and then locate high-quality elements and create an effective working OER for a class they teach. We look forward to updating you next year with the fruit of that project and offering that FLC again. That's what the Associate Vice Provost hopes for. I won't say definitely adopt because sometimes the publisher material is best, but wherever possible, uh, I would love for our departments to explore OER opportunities and see what's out there. That's Devin's hope for the next phase of our mission. Could the use of OER be useful to you if you're teaching or to you if you're advising students or influencing strategic planning or in other ways in your work at the college? The OER community is here if you want to connect. This has been a story of parallel thinking that converged to create a larger movement. Listening to each person's part of the story made me appreciate how communities adopt ideas and change over time. Sometimes it's a single person who has that lightning strike idea that changes everything. But the slow groundswell of many people arriving at similar conclusions is a kind of story that's woefully undertold. I hope you've enjoyed following these rivers of purpose and thought as they feed into one another here. And I hope you'll join us next month for our second episode, when I'll be talking to completely different parts of the college about entirely different ideas and projects. This season will have four episodes that will be released monthly. And all of those episodes will be like this one, a chorus of voices telling a story together. And if you'd like to hear more from another MTC professor and how he created OER for his math classes, go back to episode three of season one of Instructional Ecology and listen to Greg Colley's interview. Math has particular needs when it comes to textbooks and a big requirement is lots and lots of practice problems. Greg told me a bit about his journey finding and creating OER that fit his needs. Maybe we'll go back and give that a listen in the context of this latest episode. The webpage for this episode has resources you can consider for more information. And the library is always ready to assist with their expertise. Regardless, I hope you'll join us again next month to listen in to our next connected story about the ecology of our college community. And if you like these tales of connection at the college, keep an eye out for information about the coming MTC Story Archive that will give you a chance to record your own story to add to a collection of life at MTC. More soon on that. Now, let me leave you with a small treat. When I returned to MTC in 2020 and attended my first end service, my favorite part then and has continued to be was hearing a student tell their story and then tell about how MTC became a part of it. I know many others of us love those stories as well. So I'll leave you with a little more of Gail's story. She's a student in the School of English and Humanities. 
You might like to know who she is and why she came to MTC to change the impact she has in our larger community. Listening to her is to be reminded of the richness and variety of the lives who join our community for short or long miles, the goals they have, and the impact they leave on us in their passing through. And I hope you'll join us next time, further into the semester and further into the web of our community. I am a returning student, like I said, an older student, and my field of study was sociology. I'm actually a dance educator. However, the programs that I want to, to utilize led me to sociology because I wanted to have an understanding of students that I'm going to teach, an understanding past the five, six, seven, eight of it all and understand you know, the cultural background and the ethnic background and how society shapes people and how that fits with using dance to reach people, to reach dancers, to reach children, to reach adults and using dance as a catalyst for change, using dance in order to change society in the way they think. I have a keen eye on um, DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And of course, to, to get to that sociology, I needed to understand social concepts and con social constructions. Um, so that's why I returned back to school. And I just thought the pandemic was an excellent time. Everything was online. I love online. And <laughs> it was an excellent opportunity for me to return to school. Fantastic. I wasn't busy, you know, I wasn't busy. What, what was everybody doing? I had plenty of time to study, et cetera. And I'm a little bit um, a type personality when it comes to studying. So <laughs> that gave me that opportunity. And it's been very rewarding. I've had excellent instructors, Bob being one of them. And um, uh, I just wanted to take the opportunity to delve a little deeper in how society influences people and how we can utilize, like I said, dance as a catalyst to change. Because dance is my area. So I'm a dance educator for 50 years I've been in dance. Being online, I really enjoyed Christine's class, Bob's class. They made us interact with one another. So I did not feel like I was missing out on connecting with other students. I believe that one of the main functions of college is to connect with other people, forming relationships with not only your instructors, but also other college students. I like MTC because it's small community college, although it is growing. <laughs> it's a small community college and it gives you the opportunity to talk with others and that are local. And I really like that aspect of it a lot.